both started smirking immediately. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. It's episode two of the Will Berkman Variety Podcast. I'm joined by my good friend Paige Mills, aka Biker Biddy on socials. Paige, thanks so much for coming on. No, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, this is the second episode. In the first episode, I gave people a little preamble where I said this is an entirely gratuitous project where I just get to do whatever I think is interesting. But I do so with the pretext of trying to give people something that might be a little bit enriching or at the very least interesting to them. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think that you fall in the kind of interesting category of person. Thank you. And I'm, well, yeah, I'm glad you took that as a compliment. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> not not well, okay. <laughs> yeah, if I had you on and said you're actually just kind of fucking weird, that'd be rude. <laughs> but you are an interesting person because you've done a whole lot of very interesting things in your life. And it seems that kind of every field that you go into, you really go at it hard. And I think that also comes to bear in your personality. So I wanted to talk to you about a few of those experiences, about how they've helped sort of form your opinions about people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, more or less just give people an idea of who you are because you're good fun. So let's start at the very start, which is probably how a large part of your profile on Instagram came to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was that you were working as an exotic dancer or as a stripper. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I want to ask is more or less, how did you get into that? Like, how did that begin? Mm. Um, It started, I moved to the Gold Coast just for fun for six months once and I was worked on the door at a strip club there. It was actually an accident. I went for a bar job at a different bar and then they also owned a strip club and they said, do you want to work there? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? But I, I never really considered working as a dancer there. It never really occurred to me. Um, and I used to joke, I was probably a similar, uh, size weight as I am now. And I was always like, Oh, if ever I was skinny, I'd totally be a stripper. I'd totally be a stripper, but never really meant it. And then I moved back to Victoria. That was in Queensland. I moved back to Victoria and I got anorexia and I got really sick and I was in hospital for a long time and I had to quit my jobs and I still had to pay my rent and pay, uh, most of my medical expenses were covered on health insurance, but I kind of came out of hospital um, at a just healthy weight, like kind of like a lingerie model skinny weight. Um, but I was like, well, now all my bills are overdue. I'm at uni full time. I'm financially independent. I think I was 19 or 20. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I thought, oh, well, I'm skinny now. <laughs> I'll <laughs> go and be a stripper. And everybody asked me, like, how do you begin? How to get into it? Like everyone asked for advice. I just went on the website and hit the employment tab on like every, I'd never been to a strip club in Victoria. So I had to just Google strip clubs, Melbourne. And then I just went on their websites and they all had employment tabs. And I just sent an email saying, look, I have no experience. Do you teach the actual dancing? I don't know how to dance. I've got no idea what I'm doing. Um, And went in for an interview and that's how it started. But I was like making about, before I got sick, I was making about 450 to 550 a week uh, on a good week working casually at a nursing home. And um, I, as I said, was way behind on bills. I didn't own a car. I only had a little $2,000 motorbike and I'd have to ride that rain, hail or shine. And then my first night dancing, I thought I'll do like a Sunday night, which is known for being quiet. And I'll go in with the aim to not make any money. I'll just go in with the aim to like, get like see how it works because I hadn't even been there as a customer before and so I thought I'll just go there if I make 50 bucks or 100 bucks good on me no biggie first night I made 600 dollars which was more than I'd ever made in a week in my life 
And then I came back on the Friday and made like $1,200 and that pretty much covered all of my bills and rent that I was behind in. And I just remember driving a borrowed car home and just thinking like, I'm never going to have to worry about money again. Like this is, this has set me up for life. This is going to set me up for life. There's a lot about that origin story that I find really interesting. And one thing is you kind of brushed over the whole having anorexia thing, (laughs) but in my experience of people with anorexia, normally they have a lot of insecurity about their body. Um, and I would imagine that going from having had anorexia to saying, well, I'm literally going to get naked in front of people for money and let them ogle me would be a very big psychological hurdle for a lot of people. Mm. Um, how did you navigate that? Yes and no. I feel that my, <laughs> sorry to be all, I'm not like other anorexics. <laughs> but... <laughs> no, it's fine. I, we know you're not like other girls. <laughs> such a pick me girl but um I couldn't relate to the body dysmorphia and the lack of confidence and the insecurity in appearance that came with that seems to come with anorexia as we know it which made it really hard to relate or to work with a therapist because that's what they assumed my issue was and it wasn't I honestly think that I had OCD and it was manifesting in uh, my body weight and numbers and calories. I think it was a numbers thing for me. I don't think I wanted to look thinner in the mirror. I think I wanted the number on the scale lower and the calories lower and the kilometers walking higher. And I think it it's was like a game you can win through self-control almost. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember it starting with, I'm a person who's like, a little bit good at everything but great at nothing so we'd go to school and we'd do like softball and we'd just do it for a day off we don't even know the rules and I would just be really really good at it but if I pursued that sport I would never really get a lot better like it's the same with guitar I could could switch between like five chords on a guitar at the age of eight within like four hours of learning them but I can't like pick up a rhythm I can't like get the strumming patterns right like so I'm, I'm a really good beginner at things and so I'd never really just immediately failed at anything in my life and then I tried to lose weight and it's really hard if you don't understand energy balance and you've got no association with the fitness industry or anything it's really hard to lose weight with no guidance um so I just failed at it and I hated that like that frustrated me trying to lose weight and gaining it instead just did my head in and then I think it became an obsession from there so you almost think had you just lost weight really easily first time around, you would have gotten sick of it in like two weeks and been back to normal. Yeah, probably. Probably. I mean, who knows, but probably. That's that's really bizarre. So as somebody who was, you know, a fat kid who did go through the big weight loss phase, for me, one of the things that probably drove me to quite an unhealthy place in doing it was the differences in how people regarded me. Yeah, okay. Um, and you were probably living always in that sphere of like moderate hotness, so it's not a problem. Whereas for me, I went from like fat enough that women didn't take me seriously to like looking good mm-hmm. over the course of my weight loss journey. And I think that change in how I felt that people regarded me mm. meant that I massively overweighted the importance of my own leanness yeah. as a result. Yeah. Um, and that drove me to some really unhealthy behaviors because I didn't want to relinquish that control because I literally thought the only reason that a lot of people appreciated me for who I was was that I was lean enough. Mm-hmm. You know, That mm-hmm. was a very bizarre thing. Mm. And it's interesting because... I'm going to say something really controversial here, but it's just how I like honestly feel. But I remember in therapy, I remember I'm 19 at this point and I remember my therapist saying to me, "Um, what do you think will happen when you lose the weight? And I said, nothing. I just want to get the weight down there, whatever. And she's like, do you think that your life will be better? And my answer was yes. 
and my answer remains yes. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, serious. I'm serious. Fine. People are nicer to you. People want to be your friend. People want to be around attractive people. We probably do it without even realizing. Like you and I probably do it without realizing that you're just attracted in ways other than sexually to people who are attractive. Like we're just drawn to them. Well, I know there's there's actually evidence for pretty much exactly that. And one famous example is I think I can't remember how they actually did the study, but they basically determined that people were in the US were more inclined to vote for presidential candidates that they considered more handsome. Really? And, yeah. And I think there's something similar where for, for like the same degree of qualification working in the same job, hotter people get paid more. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. so there is definitely a degree to which that's true. Yeah. But I also think, and this is the thing that was insidious in my experience, but probably is insidious in a lot of people's experiences. There is also a tipping point where you become so fixated on something that supposed improvements that you make to your physique, nobody else is noticing, but what they do notice are a lot of unattractive traits. It's the, you know, the obsessiveness, the inability to relate with them socially or talk about anything except what you're eating and how you're training and little things like that, because that's what you obsess over yeah. that ultimately ends up being a net negative. Yeah. Like if it was, could I click my fingers and have washboard abdominals and like perfect proportions and all of that 24 seven, it would probably be to my benefit. Mm-hmm. But to do those things at the expense of everything else that makes me me and makes me happy, that's probably not so good. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know? true. Yeah. But obviously that feeling for me was amplified by the fact that I then went on to monetize <laughs> this halo effect that I had experienced. So that really sort of solidified that theory for me, I guess. Well, The other thing that's sort of interesting in your story is that your first point of recourse was going to be a dancer. And you'd obviously given it a little bit of thought when you're in the Gold Coast because you were joking about it then. Mm. Um, How much did your experience of what you saw when you were in, in the Gold Coast sort of lead you to that decision? Had you seen the lifestyle and gone, actually, this, this, this looks great. Had the girls said they were earning heaps of money? Um, I thought they had. So So the the club that I worked in was a real dive, like the worst club on the coast, like really bad. And I remember hearing the security guards saying like, oh my God, this girl made a thousand dollars last night. Like that was a freak amount of money. And that was like the minimum you were happy with on a weekend night when I started dancing. So yes, that was a lot of money to me, but the money was more than I thought it was going to be. But it also took me a long time, several years to realize that not everyone was making what my friends and I were making. Lots of girls. I had. I know a girl who left to work in retail because she'd never made more than 500 bucks in a night and she did it for like over a year. And so not everyone's experience is huge financial success, but I knew from the first night that like I was like made to do this, that I was going to be good at this. And the girls were telling me that. So I'm quite close with another girl who used to work as a stripper and she told me that where she was, everybody kind of had a bit of a shtick And there were some girls who like really played the just be mega hot card. And her thing was always to actually be like a little bit more funny and like get in with the boys and, and be a bit of a laugh. Mm. Um, Did you, did you experience that where you were? And if so, what was your thing? Yeah, I think like some girls, and it depends who your demographic is. So I, if I wanted to aim at an older demographic, I couldn't because they don't like Muscular girls, they like uh, really petite feminine girls. They don't like tattoos. A lot of like middle age or older than middle age 
uh, like businessmen don't like girls with tattoos. Um, so that ruled that out. But my demographic was definitely like the 24 to 35-year-old guy who was like a tradie but not like really rough around the edges tradie, like, a, like owns his own business sort of tradie. And I just used to my advantage that pretty much every hobby I've ever had, every industry that I've worked in were all super male dominated. And so, again, huge pick me thing. But I worked for most trades. I like, I don't know, often like guys are coming and we drive the same ute and we had the same motorbike and we're both into either like fishing or shooting or I could always find some common ground with a guy. And then I think men perceive I think that I still find this even in dating that men perceive um, hobbies in common as a connection and it's not like they think like gamer guys are obsessed with gamer girls. Like it doesn't matter what they look like. doesn't matter how, what their personalities are like. If they're gamers, they just think they're the hottest things in the world. Um, so I just use that to my advantage. I think. That's interesting. So complete segue. You don't think, because my mind's being blown right now. You don't think having hobbies in common is important with your partner? No, not at all. All I couldn't think of anything worse than dating someone who does like exactly what I do. Like I want hobbies away from them. And some of my favorite, one of my favorite parts about dating someone new in that like medium term phase is learning about their hobbies. Like them coming home and being like, look what I did at this sport today, like, or at their job as well, like at their industry. And then them explaining it to me and I've learned something from them. And then they learn something from me and then them repeating back to me like, oh, that swimming time was really good for you because of X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, ah, you were listening when I told you about my thing. So I completely agree with that. Like, I think it's very enriching to me to hear about stuff that I don't do because like my, I mean, I'm now talking to you about stripping. So that's a little bit outside my normal scope of work, but normally I spend my whole time talking to people about lifting weights. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's quite nice when somebody comes home and says, you know, I read a book that I liked or I, you know, whatever, I work in media or something where I'm just like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Teach me everything. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it says something for fundamental similarities in sort of how you view the world and what interests you if you have some overlap. So I think you need like enough common ground to be like, we're similar and then enough differences to feel enriched by each other. Yeah. Because otherwise you'll either be boringly similar or like completely alien, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I just think that, um, having the same um, ethics, morals, maybe religious beliefs if that's your thing or spiritual beliefs if that's your thing. I think that stuff is just more important than having in common how you feel your time. Yeah, sure. You know, and I guess the other thing, um, you've done the pick me girl thing, pick me guy thing. The other thing is so many guys love to like be really patronizing to the girls that <laughs> yeah. they're with and explain everything to them about their own hobby. Yeah, that's So true. it's like gym guys loving gym girls and then wanting to basically personal train them and that's their relationship because yeah. it like reinforces to them how tough and important they are. Yeah. Like that's a big ick. So I also understand that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I find it so attractive. Like I think the number one thing I find attractive in a man is uh, whatever the opposite to toxic masculinity is. So if I like, um, if I'm seeing someone who like doesn't go to the gym at all and they're like, oh great, you're a power lifter. Can you help me with my squat? Can you teach me how to squat? And they want to go to a gym in public and get like basically PT'd by me. Um, that's just like a huge yes from me. Yeah. Well, I, it's weirdly, it probably says something for your security in yourself to not have to 
try and like, yeah, embody all of those ideals and so on all the time to just be chill with who you are and be interested in who your partner is without considering it a threat. Yeah. And I mean, like, this should be like, the bar is literally in hell. Like this should be common sense that a woman (laughs) can teach a man thing. But the reality is that that's not how all men (laughs) work. Yeah. But again, for men, it's probably, I don't know if I can explain this properly. It's probably a bit like when, when, women expect their man to always be really done up because that's how they like to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a little bit it's a little bit the same as like you don't have to impose your your ways of thinking on me all the time. Yeah. F- you know, to value me as a person. I said that very poorly, but I entirely nah, agree with you. I right? got you, man. So, it's interesting. You, you've said all that, so obviously you have some appreciation for men. But I feel like in that line of work, you'd have been exposed to a lot of guys who behaved like shit. Um, and a lot of things that might otherwise make you a little bit jaded about relationships more broadly. Um, was that the case for you? Yes, but I think I've gone full circle. I think it made me jaded in the way you would expect where it made me think that like men are gross or, and I only say men because that's who I was dealing with. Like I'm sure that everyone, like maybe this would be the same if I was a male stripper with females, but I'm just going to say men because that that's who my customer base was. But um, at first I was just like, ill, like every guy. So the example I like to give is if you think of someone in your life who you think is the greatest guy ever that would never cheat on his girlfriend, that would never do the wrong thing, right? Like super loyal. It's usually someone who um, can benefit from you believing that about them. So for example, your sister's boyfriend, he wants you to believe that he's a really good guy because he benefits from that. You take that person that you think he's a saint, you put them in a strip club, they come into a dance, they like say all the right things, they're super respectful, they're like, oh, it's just my bucks night, like the guys wanted me to come here, like you're great, you're a great girl, you know, you can dance or you can not dance, I don't care, but like, you know, tell me about you and then they leave and they say thank you so much, like that was really lovely, like you're a great girl and they don't say anything creepy and they don't try and touch and they don't invite you to the after party and then on their way out they're just like, here's my room key if you want to come back at the end. I'm like, what? This whole 20 minutes, I was like, oh, my God, this guy's so sweet. He talked about how in love he is with his fiance and how he can't wait to get married. And then he still invited me back to his room. And so I just kind of think that they feel a sense of anonymity there because you're anonymous, like it's not your real name and you're probably never going to see them again and you've seen 80 guys that night. Um, And I think people just show their true colours. I know it's not all men, but it's an astonishing number. And it's often been people that I actually know, like my friends, ex-boyfriends will come in or my friends' boyfriends will come in. And that sort of thing blew me away. So at first I was kind of like, yeah, I wouldn't enter a relationship if I didn't want to be cheated on because that's just the way that it's going to go. Um, But now... I do believe in marriage again and I do believe in a successful marriage again. I just still wouldn't trust someone to never cheat on me. So there's so much that I'd like to unpack there because I think it's very interesting. But I, I want to start with the fact that you, you do believe in marriage again and so on. Was there a moment where you had an epiphany about that? Um, yeah, it was when I realized that, um, because I'm expecting infidelity and because that's what I assume is going to happen, I'm emotionally prepared for it and I will be okay if it happens or when it happens to me again. (laughs) Um, so, uh, I think like probably most people get cheated on and they may or may not find out about it. Um, but it's like, I know that I'm 
emotionally what's the word like tough enough I guess that it won't destroy me when it happens to me so I'm somewhere between naive and optimistic in that I don't think that I don't think that the majority of people don't have it in them to cheat Mm -hmm. but I would like to think that there are lots of relationships where it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. At the same time, where I grew up, I could have literally walked down my street and pointed at the neighbours where I know they'd had marriage problems. Mm-hmm. So, and there would have been a lot of them. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um, and I do see, I do see enough relationships around me where there are problems with monogamy. You know, people people cheat on each other, or they have a really ugly breakup and get back together, and so on. And the couple are able to work through it and regain trust and be stronger. So I see all that and I go, you know, that might not be the death knell for relationships, but I also, I also do fundamentally sort of believe in the goodness of people. And so I like to think that there are people out there who do have it in them to not have, to not act that way. Mm. And so to me, I still hear that and think, you know, some part of you is colored obviously by the experience that you had Mm -hmm. working in a field where like, you've probably got a bit of a biased sample. You know, the majority of people who are coming into a strip club to see naked girls, irrespective of irrespective of their relationship status and why they're there, they're still people who would be inclined to go into a strip club and see naked girls that they don't know. Mm. And this isn't to excuse their behaviour, but also, you know, some part of them probably thinks that because you are in a strip club naked, that your standards of behavior are going to be different too. And so they meet you down there. Mm-hmm. And as demoralizing as that is, and it's not to say they're not accountable for their behavior, that probably just means that you see more of the worst than you do of the best, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. But I can also appreciate that, like, if like if I have one more guy say to me, like, every time you tell anyone you're a dancer, whether it's in a lot of the time it's in the club or in my social life, the first thing guys say to you is, uh, if I had a dollar, is, oh, I just don't get the strip club thing. Like, I just don't understand. Like, I just don't. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, don't go then. Like, you're not the target audience. Like, you know, every guy says that. Um, But the guys that are in there, I think, like, maybe, like, 30% of them are guys who just love the concept of a strip club. They just want to go all the time and or occasionally and they just think it's a nice experience. And the rest are there because, like, it's a bucks party or because it's a once off. They just wanted to see what it was like, or they got dragged because it's a friend's birthday. So I feel like I have to go like stay with the group um, on a friend's birthday or whatever. So I I think the guys who go alone, sure. are The sort of guys who go out um, and seek out sex work, but a lot of the other guys are not like, I think the biggest misconception that everyone has about stripping and I hate it when people say it, is that everyone's a creep. I hate the word creep, but everyone's always like, oh, you must get the creepiest dudes, you must get the creepiest dudes. And guys would say that to me in a dance. And I would say to them, "What? why do you think that you're better than the other people here? Like, what do you think sets you apart from the other people here? Like, they're, they're all saying the same thing. There's a meme, a cartoon uh, picture going around of, like, a speech bubble at the top and like eight guys in the club all connected to the speech bubble that all say, um, I'm not like the other guys here or I never do this or whatever. It's like every guy thinks that he's different to the strip club customer guy there. But if you're a strip club customer, you're a strip club customer. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's some truth to that. So you like, you, you saw that behavior from the guys even the sweet ones who would offer you the room key mm-hmm. i'm sure there were there were guys who were probably less subtle than that and a little bit creepier mm-hmm. um you and you seem to think that that is something that's quite innate to people broadly mm. um 
Sorry to put you, put you on the spot, but do you think that you yourself would exhibit all the behaviours that you see in other people that you don't admire? Um, do you mean at like a strip club? In the right circumstances. Not not even necessarily at a strip club. I reckon at a strip club you'd actually be pretty good fun, to be honest. Uh, I don't, like, I couldn't imagine going into an establishment and thinking the rules of society differ here from outside the doors. I can't relate to that. I, but I think a lot of, I don't know if it's a gender thing or not, but, like, that's the part that I didn't understand. I didn't mind because often when they, like, it's profitable, them, like, thinking the rules don't exist there. Because um, as long as they're not rude or whatever, they can think whatever they want while they're there. Um, but, no, I, I can't relate to that, like, uh, this girl's in a strip club so I can say to her things that I would never say to a girl in a bar. This is different. Yeah, well, I guess part of the reason why I ask is, like, obviously you think some of those things of men in spite of that, you don't hate men, which is handy, but like a lot of people who would hold those beliefs would also then say that like, you know, the girls would never do that. Like all the girls are loyal or, uh, or, you know, the girls would never act that way. And it's all the men who are grubs or they would think, nah, everybody's just a bad person. And that could make you quite jaded too. Well, I think I just can't differentiate between who is genuinely sweet and who seems so sweet all the time. But then if you put them in a strip club environment, they would breach all of their morals. So I don't know, maybe it's a safety net to just like paint everyone with the same brush and then I can never, no one can ever surprise me and sneak up on me and exhibit those behaviours. So I'm prepared for it. So we've kind of gotten quite deep on this, but if you were to say like you are prepared to be cheated on and you don't think that's going to be the end of your world, Mm -hmm. Um, but you still do believe in marriage as something you might aspire to. What types of things would you look for that says a relationship could be a successful one? Um, I think that I'm not attached to the permanence of marriage. And I know that's controversial because you might say, well, what's the point in getting married if you don't think it's going to be forever? Um, But I basically think that you can have a really great, fun, awesome marriage up until someone cheats or you fall out of love or your what you want changes or for whatever reason that it ends and I don't think that thinking that the marriage is going to end one day is a reason to never enter it in the first place like if you feel like doing something right now then I think you should just do it basically sure that's like a very Vegas marriage though as opposed to like a Catholic marriage I guess when you think about when you think about that concept, you know? Yeah, but um, I don't know. I just think like when I when I hear about like friends getting divorced, I don't see it as like a failure of their marriage. I think that they stayed together while it was amazing and they had the best memories together and probably like at one point were just so deeply in love and probably did feel like it was going to be forever and it's sad that it's not forever. But like if the option is to stay together because that's what you should do because that's being loyal and I think loyalty is a shit reason to stay together. I think if you don't enjoy each other's company anymore or you don't have feelings for each other anymore, then you shouldn't just stay together because you you have that piece of paper and a ring on your finger. Sure. Well, there might be something to that. I want to, I want to kind of leave this topic behind, but we'll probably come back to it. Mm -hmm. While you were, while you were dancing, you had also begun to work in fitness. And so I'm kind of interested to know where your interests in fitness sort of interact with everything else that you were doing. Mm. Um, so how'd that begin? Uh, it's not very interesting. I just kind of, um, well, when I started studying nursing, I built a desire to do something to keep me more active because prior to that I was like laboring on construction sites and working in like farm management and stuff. So 
I was very physically active and then studying and working indoors as a nurse. Like I just felt that I had energy that needed expending. Um, so I started at a CrossFit gym for like a couple of months, but then I got really sick really quick with the anorexia. So I scrapped it and I didn't come back to it until um, I'd started gaining weight after anorexia. And then it was just because I just wanted to look better naked, really. Like I just wanted to get in better shape, I guess. Um, so I just started uh, lifting weights to look better. And then it turned out that like strength was my strength, I guess. Um, that I was getting stronger before I was getting more aesthetic. So I think we just like what we're good at and that's what led me to powerlifting really, just progressed that way. So do you think any of your interest in fitness initially was a manifestation of the same thing that you think sort of drew, drew you to anorexia is the wrong term, but like that made you susceptible to anorexia, that, that ability to sort of work at something and gamify it and see progress, but at the same time potentially get it wrong and not? No, I don't think so. I think I just wanted to look better, really. I just, yeah, I was about, I was the same weight as I am now, but I had never really done any fitness other than a couple of months of CrossFit. So I was like skinny fat, I guess. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to look better. I don't know. I don't think I thought about it that hard. And then it just felt good going, obviously. It releases endorphins, like lifting weights. And then um, as soon as I started seeing some progress, so I had to drag myself to the gym every day. I couldn't be bothered going. And then as soon as I started seeing some progress, like, uh, like muscle growth, then I was like, I want to be huge. I want to get jacked. Like, I was like, yeah, right into it. Well, it's interesting because how long into that journey did you begin coaching? Oh, maybe three years or four, three years, maybe. Okay, so a while passed before you were doing it. But the reason that I say it's interesting is because it's not like you weren't busy. Like you're working as a nurse, you're a stripper, you were saying you had no financial problems or no financial worries and you definitely didn't. So you probably didn't really need to be doing the work, but something about fitness appealed to you enough that you wanted to bring other people into that lifestyle. What was it? Oh, no, I sort of um, started coaching because I was ready to leave stripping. And by then um, I was, look, I was a professional athlete, but let me like powerlifters will hate me using that term because in terms of like the strongest, like the Australian ranking, I wasn't that strong, but I was making enough money on the weekends that I could just focus on my sport Monday to Friday. So I was kind of lifting full-time in that sense or being a full-time athlete in that sense. And my sponsorships were quite generous. So I was getting a pretty good income from sponsors because of my powerlifting. So I wasn't at really an elite powerlifter. The pinnacle of my career was like fourth at nationals. Um, but I was a professional athlete in that, like I was making money off it and it was my primary focus. So that was happening first while I was dancing. And then I was like, I want to leave dancing. I think I'll further monetize my powerlifting. And that's when I opened a gym. And okay. um, yeah. So the fact that you had sponsorships and were earning money from it's something that we entirely glossed over. How did you build the profile that got you the sponsorships? And why do you think it was that companies wanted to work with you? Um, it was very intentional. My Instagram growing was extremely intentional prior to the day that I real that I decided I wanted to grow a following. I'd never taken, I'd never posted a selfie on Facebook, Instagram, nothing. Um, and I was just posting photos of my motorbike really. And I'd already chosen the Instagram name Biker Biddy, thinking like it'd be me and eight friends on there. 
And um, then some of my friends, uh, one of them, you guys can look her up if you want. Her name is Vicky Aisha. I was dancing with her and her and I were working a lot and she started building a following. She had like 60, 70,000 followers. I believe she's got about 3 million now or something. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So she was kind of an OnlyFans girl before OnlyFans was a thing or before anyone was really doing it. Um, but uh, she was just getting little things, you know, like, oh, a random follower wanted to buy me a pair of Yeezys or a ran- this random business wanted to give me a free meal for me and 10 of my friends or like little tiny opportunities like that. And I was like, that sounds fun. And fun. And then another friend who has a million followers, Peggy Sue, she was like, we danced together as well. And she was like, you could totally do it. You could totally do it. Like Instagram loves girls with tattoos and you're a stripper and the motorbike thing. Like you could, like you're in so many niches, you could do it. And I was like, okay. So they said, cool, we'll tag you in a few posts. So I got to like 10,000 followers pretty quick, like within a couple of weeks. Um, And back then the algorithm in Instagram, it was just at the end of the time where it was really easy to grow on Instagram. So this is probably 2015 or 16 um and the algorithm was just like one photo would go viral and you'd get 20,000 followers in two weeks over it or something um but also Vicky and I seem to have found this hole in the algorithm where we would go live and we would just sit there together in a bikini like just like ribs up and um we'd sit there together in a bikini and just answer dumb questions like what's you guys' favorite food who's the funnier one out of you two and like stuff like that and our followings would just skyrocket. I think no one was going live then. So maybe in like the explore page, we were just always at the top. And it was so so cumulative. Like um, if a photo got lots of likes, then it would be in everyone's, um, in everyone's explore page. Um, but now they've spread out over creators. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So back then, if you went a little bit viral, you went very viral. And um so more people would join our lives and it would go to more people's um, explore pages and just kept going and going. So we'd spend like half an hour a night at work while we're all dolled up and stuff um, on lives and our followings just like grew heaps. Um, but then from there I joined the fitness niche and um, your question about um, what do you think made companies want to work with you? Well, I may have maybe the biggest following in powerlifting in Australia like when my page is just powerlifting, no one probably uh, close to true. I apologize if I've like overlooked anyone, but I can't think of anyone. Mm. Um, and in the world, maybe like top five to ten of women, maybe I can only name two or three with higher followings than mine. So if you're a powerlifting company and you have a product, whether it's a pair of knee sleeves or a set of calibrated plates or whatever. I'm one of your only options. And if there's six companies doing your thing, well, the other five girls have already been picked up by those companies. So you can kind of ask what you want in terms of sponsorship. Who else are they going to go to? So that was a huge benefit of being in a small niche. If I was a bodybuilder, I wouldn't have got anything. If I was a, like, because I'm not really, I'm not a 10. Like I can't really rely on my looks. It was just that in my niche, I had a big following. So, and I mean, like I kind of cheated because I put out, um sexualized content at the start well not sexualized it was just like lingerie selfies but I put out that content at the start which sex sells it built a huge following and now I've pivoted to other things and it still helps you that number that follower count still has a value even though a lot of them are people with no interest in powerlifting and it also makes people more likely to follow you if they find a powerlifting mm-hmm. account and I'm not that strong and I'm not that pretty but I've already got 200,000 followers or something it does convince people to follow you more easily 
yeah, it's like it's like a stamp of credibility, mm-hmm. right? If everybody else is going to follow you, there must be something worth following. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> had a I had a couple of questions there, but I I lost a few of them. I guess the first and most important one though is why did you decide to leave stripping? Um, I have to be very careful how I answer this. So. Uh, in stripping, it's very common that girls will get a boyfriend and their boyfriend knows they're a stripper and then they make them, in quotation marks, um, leave stripping, which is so messed up because, like, you knew she was a dancer when you met her. Like, imagine. And also just, like, leaving a job, any job for any person is crazy. That was not the case for me, but I was in an abusive relationship where... I was sort of bullied while I was at work so much that my mental health was not good enough to remain at work. Um, I was a lot less well than I was when I had anorexia. Like anorexia had nothing on that period of my life. Like it was bad, really bad. Um, and that person used their, used my dancing as justification for their cheating and like it was horrible. And in stripping, if your mental health isn't a thousand percent, you make no money. The men can smell the misery on you. Like if you're not a hundred percent perky, upbeat, happy, then you can't, like you just can't make money because guys just only want this fun, carefree girl. Um, so it got to the point where I was thinking like, I remember one night I was thinking maybe if I like drank a heat while I was here, and I was like, that's that's how I know I need to get out. If I'm thinking about, like, using a substance to make myself tolerate this job, then, like, I need to get out. But, you know, in- I imagine it's doubly demoralizing as well, hey, if you're already feeling a little bit down and then you go to work or a lot down and then you go to work and you're making less money and you're like, wow, people must be able to, like, smell it on me that I'm sad. Like, it must feel... You must feel so exposed and, you know, and have even less worth to yourself when you're like, I'm not even making money because of how I feel about me. Yeah, exactly. And, like, um, there's heaps of rejection in stripping. Like, if you can't handle rejection, you just cannot do it because you might ask 20 people to take you for a dance and 19 might say no before someone says yes. And then and I'm, I was like, that was kind of my strength was I did not give up fuck like I'll go around if the club's really empty there's only like 10 guys in there I'll go around to those 10 four times and I'll just ask again I don't care if they think I'm annoying because often the fourth time someone will say well not often but occasionally someone will say yes and if it's a $400 success like if he gives me $400 a fourth or tenth time I go around there then it was worth going around again so I was never afraid of the rejection and sometimes you might like um you say no a guy will say no to you and then two minutes later you see him say yes to another girl and some girls will be like what's that girl got that I don't like why is this guy giving everyone money but me or whatever and I just never gave a shit about that this one girl that I worked with she was like really successful as a stripper like she was like she would have been like top two or three owners of the club like so lucrative for her a guy would insult her she was really smart like academically gifted a guy would insult her, like, fully to her face, say something mean in front of his friends, and she would go, oh, baby, oh, my God, you can't say that. I like your hair. And then he'd take her for a dance and he'd give her several hundred dollars, and it's all because she had the tough skin to pretend to be this ditzy bitch who had no idea she was being insulted. And she's like, I don't care. I can say what he wants. He's giving me money. Like, I don't give a fuck what he says about me. I'm like, that is so admirable. Like, 
like if you can just put aside like who cares what he's saying about like I don't know like if it's in a bar and you have nothing to gain from this man then stand up for yourself stand your ground you deserve better than that but if your goal is to go there and make money not to make friends then who cares <laughs> guys can say whatever they want <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess so. It's kind of weird to me because on the one hand, she's kind of getting a revenge because she's almost deceived him and taken all of his money. So at the end of the day, he's the fool. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's it's like that behavior is so, that behavior by him is so rude that it's like, I can't imagine that it's good for you or how you feel about yourself or how you feel about people to be like, oh, well, I'll, I'll tolerate being treated badly because it is transactional, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but I think it is what you make of it. Like, I'm not a sentimental person. I can pick and choose where I apply sentimental value to things. And, like, yeah, I don't know. Being rejected or treated poorly by someone that I actually care about might have an effect on me. But being treated poorly by someone who I want to take their money, like, no, I don't care. Yeah, sure. I I mean, I kind of understand that. It's like if I do a session with somebody a once-off and they pay me, well enough and they're like not the most pleasant person you know i'm still getting my session fee i broadly understand that yeah and Um, and i would tolerate less as my career went on as my confidence that so if there were six guys in a club and one was really annoying but he was like paying me consistently i would tolerate him but if someone was annoying and there was 200 guys out there i'd just get rid of him and go find someone else um but yeah i don't know like if i said to you all right i'm gonna give you 400 dollars an hour to have this person like hurl not hurl abuse at you but like give you like little snide comments or or just make you a little bit uncomfortable like it's kind of worth it man <laughs> yeah i mean and for some people that's their kink right like yeah you know they'd pay, they'd pay 400 dollars to be insulted for an hour so that's fine too yeah um the second question i had i remembered it while you were talking mm-hmm. is you spoke about how you posted like lingerie content and things as a you know sneaky way to build your following on instagram mm-hmm. How did it feel when you were trying to sort of be taken seriously as a coach that you were the subject of a lot of those like, you know, wow, she lifts two memes and things where they'd be like you in lingerie and then you lifting weights and being like, you know, she's the perfect woman or like you as a nurse and you in lingerie or something like that Mm. as though it was kind of fetishizing you without necessarily recognizing your expertise in what you were trying to offer? I don't know. I just saw like, I know not everyone perceives it this way and I probably should have more awareness of that, but what I did dancing was so professional. Like I never took drugs at work. I never got drunk at work. I never went home with a customer. I never gave a customer my number. I gave, I'm sorry, I gave one customer my number on a second phone because they didn't have social media and they ended up giving me about $130,000 over three years. So it wasn't for nothing. (laughs) Um, So generally like I was just so professional. I wouldn't even line up for water at the bar because I didn't want to waste time that I could be making money. So to me, the fact that I was a dancer is no different to if I had been a waitress or I know it is to other people. It's completely different. But when people say like, oh, did you feel uncomfortable when friends would come into the club? That's the same to me as friends coming into a restaurant that I waitress at. Like, no, I'm just doing my job. So, no, I've never I've never felt um, that I'm taken less seriously in my career because I've been sexualized because the benefit of that publicity has outweighed uh, the issue of, um, what am I saying, the issue of professionalism. And also it's immeasurable. I can't tell who's not worked with me because or who hasn't reached out to me because I was a stripper, but I can tell how many people have reached out because of my social media following, which came from being a stripper. Yeah, no, I understand that as well. So in general, you are a bit of a hustler though. You work really hard 
whether it's in fitness or when you're stripping, you're still nursing, which I'd love to talk about a bit as well. Um, in general, are you doing all of this hustling with an end point in mind? Like what is it that you're trying to achieve in life? No, I think I just love, I've always, so when I was 11, I had two people working for me. I have always had businesses. I've never had only one business. I've always had several at a time. Um, and I think I just really enjoy the process. I think I really enjoy um, the thrill that comes with making money. And it's taken me a long time to be able to admit that because people seem to frown upon that. You seem to not be able to admit to people that money makes you feel good, um, which is why it was so easy to tolerate uh, working in uh, the stripping industry for so long because you're being paid immediately. So you have that immediate gratification of several hundred dollars being handed to you, which makes it a lot easier to enjoy your time at work, I think. Um, but no, I just love, I'm just entrepreneurial by nature and I just love um, building businesses, selling them. I like negotiating. That's fun to me. The win of walking out of a negotiation on top is just greater to me than the win of like a sport or whatever but in terms of end goal there isn't even shit that I like want to buy with the money that I make like I don't even I don't know like well I wanted to be where I am now I wanted to like I wanted work to be optional I wanted to be semi-retired and I wanted to work for fun and not because I had to and my passive income now is such that that's the case for me so this is all I wanted which is great because now I feel like the pressure's off me so when you were 11 years old you had employees what was your business well, it was just picking up horse shit at stables. Okay. And I went on a family holiday for two weeks and the owners of the stables said they were paying me per paddock and to like clean the paddock. And they said, what are we going to do while you're gone? Do you have anyone who can fill your shoes while we're gone? And I said, I'll find someone. So I got two of my school friends to go there. I paid them an hourly rate. I took a rate per paddock and I profited the gap. And then the, my dad had a backhoe. Uh, which is like an excavator, and um, they said, can he take away? Like all the horse shit goes into like a big pile in like a frame. And um, they said, can you get your dad, can you get a quote to have that taken away? And I said, yeah, sure. So I gave him a quote, like I think it was $200 or $300 or something to remove the manure. And then I rang up the Geelong Advertiser, the newspaper here, and I put an ad in there saying horse proof for sale, $30 per trailer or something. So people would rock up there with their trailer. So they were paying to buy the horse shit, but also the um, stables were paying for me to remove it. And so I was profiting off that. And um, my parents just thought this was a great thing. Good on me. Uh, I mean, listening to it, I think it's a great thing. It sounds like a fantastic business. I'm surprised you actually bothered with stripping in some <laughs> ways. Like I'm, I'm sure there's enough horse shit around that you could be <laughs> quite comfortable it's interesting so while I was stripping though I wasn't very entrepreneurial I think it just comes out of necessity I think I was just making good money and saving and living below my means so I just didn't need to do anything else but in hindsight I should have been because I had the time to do so when you so now you say you're kind of you work for fun when you look at a business what makes it worthwhile to you to be involved it's well, usually what draws me to it is that I have some small leg up over other people who would be looking to start that business. 
So um, let me think of an example. I bought earth moving equipment because my dad had half an acre and he said that I could use that as my depot so I wouldn't have to pay rent on an area to store my machines. I also, there was an initiative in my area many, many years ago where you could get all your earth moving licenses for free if you didn't have Cert 3 or above in anything. And I was at uni, so I raced to get all of those. So I've got like 11 operating licenses. Um, I just like collected them because they were free at the time. And um, I also had the time and money to spend on, because you can't really get lessons in driving earth moving equipment. You just kind of like get employed and then climb the ladder. But I could afford, I bought like a brand new um skid steer and I had the time to just like dig up my dad's place put it back together and learn that so that was the thing that I used to my advantage and then when it came to coaching it was just a case of I've got the following a lot of them are powerlifters now um, I'm getting dms all the time saying do you offer coaching so that was a leg up that I had on another personal trainer and that's why I did that so just broadly you seem to be somebody who also really values like your independence and self-made success. Like you don't strike me as somebody who ever wants to be particularly reliant on other people. You're saying you don't want to be reliant on somebody else to be happy. You know, mm. you're an entrepreneur. Like I don't think you've you've ever really had a boss outside of maybe, you know, the person who owned the strip clubs you were at, but even then you're working for yourself. Mm-hmm. How much of that is manifest in your other interests? Like do you think that that, that interest in self-made success is part of what drove you to be a good powerlifter and now to do triathlon and things? Um, I had never thought of it, but then when I did my first triathlon, which was only last, uh, this March just gone, I did remember not only being proud that like I got fit enough to do it, but I do remember being proud that I didn't date someone who got me into it, or I didn't have a best friend that got me into it and no one guided me. I was just on forums. Like I remember I'd lie in bed and I'd think, shit, when I get out of the water, my feet are going to be covered in sand. How am I going to put shoes and socks on and ride my bike and go for a run if my feet are covered in sand? And I just go on a forum and I'd like figure it out. And then same with like bike parts and stuff like that. Like I pretty much learned how to like service my own bike and whatever. Um, And I do remember having a sense of pride of like nobody handed me this. No one taught me this. And I rocked up on my own. Like I drove an hour and a half to my race and I just, you know, there was only someone at the finish line for me because my sister's husband did it as well, did the same race. Um. But, yeah, I don't really – he's very much a beginner, my sister's husband, so I didn't have anyone really guiding me. I YouTubed how to change tyres in case that happened in my race and I did really like that, yeah. And with the motorbikes, people always ask me, like if I, when, I say I've got a, uh, like when I say I've got Harleys, they always say, oh, what does your boyfriend ride or something? It's like, no, sometimes girls can just get hobbies on their own. Can you believe it? <laughs> so the thing that I've never understood with triathlons mm. – is if there was an order that I wanted to do things, I think that I would run first and then cycle and then swim at the end pretty much because of the reason that you said, like being wet and then having to do the other things would suck. Mm -hmm. And then I feel like I would want a pound pavement before I'd already tired myself out riding the bike and so on. So the order of the events never quite made sense to me. I assume, I've never looked this up, but I assume that it's a safety thing because uh, maybe not the ride and the run, but the swim first, because if you can't ride any further, you just stop. If you can't run any further, you just walk. Um, But if you can't swim any further and you're in open water, you have to pull people out of the water. Um, So I assume... That does make sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then I think that maybe it's just harder to do 
a run after a ride than it is vice versa. Well, I'm sure it's harder to do the run after the ride, right? So like the Hawaiian Ironman or whatever, they run a full marathon having like swum however many Ks, three or five Ks or something and ridden like 150, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? And I imagine that running a marathon, I mean, running a marathon is already hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. doing it at the end must be, must be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. But a couple of benefits that you might not have considered is that if you're in a hot climate, it's quite nice being wet the whole ride and also fueling. So eating your gels and stuff, bars, if that's your thing, much easier on a bike than it is running. Yeah. Well, that, that does make a little bit of sense, but physiology nerd for me, um, having all of the water actually, Physiology nerd, I was going to say something that I think might be wrong. Having all of the water evaporate off you actually might keep you cooler, so ignore me. Mm. Um, Mm. I was going to say the other way around, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. Okay, up until now, we've had this chat where I've sort of painted you as a bit of an individualist. You know, we've spoken about your career and your aspirations and all the things you've done. Mm -hmm. But you've mentioned a few times in passing that you worked in a nursing home. You know, you still do some work as a nurse. And so I'm interested what drew you to doing that initially. Um, the people aren't going to like this answer. <laughs> but <Go on. laughs> So 33% of my Instagram following is American and 11% is mm-hmm. Australian. That was the last time I checked, which was like a year ago. But um, Americans really like put nurses on a pedestal. They think that we're gods. Um, so they're not going to like this answer, but... I actually, when I finished high school, was tossing up between being a cop or being an ambo. And I decided that I could do both at some point in my life. But at the time, it's not the case anymore, but at the time they used to tell cops when you applied to be a cop, they'd say, go away and get some life experience and come back. And so I thought I probably won't get in straight out of school, but also going to uni would be a good experience while I'm young rather than being like going to uni when I'm 30 or whatever. And then it just kind of became a bucket list thing to get a degree. I just wanted, it was like a self-actualization thing. I wasn't naturally gifted at academia. I had to, I was one of the people who had to study hard to get okay marks. And so I thought it would be very satisfying for me to get a degree. And it was. Um, And so I did nursing with the intent to go into um, paramedicine afterwards, which is only an extra year once you've got your nursing degree. And then I did a year of nursing and started dancing. And then I decided that I liked money too much to be a nurse or an ambo. So, but when I think about like what, like in hindsight, it's so obvious that I should have studied like something finance related or something business related or whatever. And if I, if I had to go to uni right now, I would. Um, but at the time I didn't know that I was entrepreneurial, which is wild because I had several successful businesses through high school. Um, but I just didn't really, no one really said, wow, that's amazing to me. It was just like, I don't know. They, in fact, they told me the opposite. People were kind of like, live your life, be a kid, like you're working till dark every night outside and then coming home and doing the books kind of thing. So uh, I used to do my homework at lunchtime at school so I could work when I got home. And um, I, it, it just didn't occur to me that business was a career. I thought you were like a teacher or a doctor or like within the confines of like, if, if, I didn't realise there were jobs that aren't dress-ups for kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I do understand that. Yeah. So it's interesting being like being a cop and being a paramedic, both of them are like 
professions where you turn up on the front line and something's really happened and you're like an action person. Mm. Was that what drew you to that? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I knew that it would give me really good life experience. I knew that I'd be exposed to people and things and situations that I wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. And I liked that. I, I liked that I would be uh, more worldly having done it. Um, but I found that from nursing anyway. What's well, interesting you describing it like that. Like I think of nurses broadly as very empathetic people who want to care for others and make sure they're okay. I love where this is and going. You're, you're smirking. No, you're smirking <laughs> because like, you know, maybe that's not entirely true, but I see a parallel between that and what motivates a lot of fitness professionals. And you're a fitness professional as, as well, which is, you know, you're empathetic and you want to help people achieve something you consider is important to you. Yeah. But then there's the other side, which is, realistically a large number of fitness professionals where they actually get into it out of self-interest. They're like, you know, I love going to the gym, therefore I'm going to be a personal trainer and it's going to be sick because I just get to go to the gym all day. Yeah. And in some part, it sounds like your interest in nursing was a bit the same where you were like, well, this seems like something that's going to give me a good experience and the fact you were caring for others is almost incidental. Is that true? Uh, to be honest, a little bit, yeah. Like, it, yeah. But, um, but also... Um, oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. Also, I had seen my brother not know what he wanted to do when he finished school. And so he did very little. And I decided that a better approach would be to just go headfirst into any old thing and see where it takes me. Like I might meet one person in that career who sends me on a completely different path. And I just knew that picking something was better than not picking anything. And um, you know how people tell creative people like, oh, you should go and get a trade before you commit to being a photographer or being a model or whatever, right? Um, nursing was kind of my piece of paper to get so that it didn't matter what I did after that. I had something to fall back on. And so in that sense, nursing is a great thing to choose because there's not many degree requiring jobs where you can work part-time. And I knew that if I wanted to have kids one day, I could just work one day a fortnight if I wanted to as a nurse. And I knew I was, I was employable in every state and that there was demand for my employment um, everywhere. So it was kind of a responsible decision more than it was a decision of passion. Sure. So I want to sort of start bringing this discussion a bit to a head we've covered all of these really interesting things that you've done and there's many more that we're probably not going to touch on. But one of the things I find really interesting about you is that you are a generalist, like you have dipped your finger in so many pies and I'm sure learnt something from all of them. So when you look over your career, do you attribute your success in all of the things you've done to lessons that you've learnt from different fields and what are maybe one or two big life left lessons that you've taken away from all the things you've done? I think in business and fitness, my answer are two different things. I think in business, a huge realization I had is that everyone I know um, who is, has any success in business, whether it's just like a sole trader or if it's a huge company, they've all picked an industry. Like maybe they got an apprenticeship at 16 in carpentry. And so they know everything there is to know about carpentry. And they start a business in that with great confidence, knowing everything about the industry or the trade. And I never had that. There was no one thing that I really found was my niche. Like later it became powerlifting, but um, that concerned me. I was like, well, I can't have a big successful business. I don't have a specialty. I don't have an area that I'm an expert in. And now I've learned that business is a skill in itself. Running a business, managing a business is a skill and that's enough. You can hire people who know things about that niche um, which makes it more expensive to launch anything because you have to hire a highly skilled person straight off the bat um, so 
I think that's why I've had success because I'm not good at running a gym and I'm not good at earth moving and I'm not good at um, producing products. I'm good at managing the tasks that that those things require. Um, So that was a huge like uh, weight off my shoulders to sort of see that you don't need to have a niche to be successful or to be good at something. Um, And in fitness, I think like, um, yeah, I think that a lot of sports are same, same, but different. So like if you understand barbell biomechanics, I find in my golf swing it's helped. Like there's just things that I understand like about using your hips to drive with the ball, with the to drive the ball rather than using your arms. That would be a really hard thing to grasp if I hadn't been a power lifter and learned about kettlebell swings and stuff like that. Um, and progressive overload, the biggest overlap. Like if you understand progressive overload, you can use that in any sport. Um and maybe nutrition a little bit too not that I really adhere to what I know is best but it's nice to have the knowledge nonetheless I mean given your history it's probably good (laughs) that you're not too hell-bent on nutrition at this point (laughs) that's true that's true (laughs) all right this was the final question that I sent you in the email Um, I'm interested what you're going to say so let's imagine I put you in a time machine right now and you go back and you get to talk to 16 year old Paige Mm. What things would you tell her about life that's coming ahead? Um, um, did you ask me this? I feel very underprepared for this. You tell me you asked I, me. This. I said it to you. Yeah. Really? Did I give you an answer? No, I wouldn't have. No, of course not. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I'd probably um, tell myself to come out. <laughs> come out of the closet <laughs> that yeah. no one's going to pick on you. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, like I, I know that the cliche answer is I wouldn't change a thing because everything's led me to the person that I am today. Um, maybe I'd start and, and even like when I remember when I started stripping, I thought like I wish I'd start this, I'd started this earlier. Where would I be if I'd done this two years prior? You were 19, weren't you? 20, yeah. Okay, I was going to say there's not that much earlier you could have stopped. Yeah, but like financially another 12 months doing that versus like working in bars, life-changing. Yeah. Um, but I think that being a person who has spent a couple of months living in my car um, and has had utilities switched off on me and stuff, I think that made me value the money a lot. Um, and I think that made me a better person. So, um, yeah, maybe I would just tell myself like, Maybe I would tell myself to pursue business. Um, I don't want to take nursing back. Like I don't – a lot of people think it's a waste. Like, oh, what a shame that you went to uni for low-key, took me four years to get a three-year degree. But um, <laughs> maybe like people tell me like, oh, it's such a waste that you went to uni and now you don't really want to do nursing. And it's like, well, I didn't really change my mind. I just had it as a backup. But, yeah, I guess I could have benefited from studying commerce or something instead. And just from like um, – Maybe I give myself the quote, the quote that I've heard before that's like everyone's had a multi-million dollar idea, it's just no one has the guts to implement it because now I, hindsight's twenty twenty, and now I look back on business ideas I ha- I've had that then other people have gone on to do with great success. So maybe I should have given myself a pep talk about like that success isn't reserved for other people. You can do that. You don't have to be from a family of successful people to be the person who implements a great idea. So I'm sorry I gave you 35 half answers to that question. 
No, that's good. I mean, I'm intending to Google horse shit near me straight <laughs> after this podcast and see what I can find out. I also asked if you'd give any advice to 16-year-old me because we're the same age. Are we? And I think you've seen pictures of 16-year-old me, so your advice might just be to like lose some weight and <laughs> cut your hair. But, but I'm interested if you had any for me or for other people who aren't you. Um, same type of thing? Yeah, I think so. Like you're... Your future isn't limited by like where you've come from. Like, and I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm from like a poor family. I'm not from a poor family, but I'm not from a business-minded family at all. Um, and I think that was off-putting for me as a kid. I thought that rich people had rich kids, and that, that wasn't an option for me. Right. Well, Paige, this has been a really good, fun discussion. So thank you very much. I feel like your audience is probably bigger than my listenership at this point. But if you want, if you want to tell people where they can find you and anything that's just in the works for you that's exciting, then go right ahead. Yeah, um, you can find me on pretty much all the socials um, at Biker Biddy, um, and yeah, my next project is e-commerce. I've got someone working full time um, producing a product. It is somehow related to the health industry, but not the fitness industry, like the medical industry. So um, keep an eye out for that. Follow me on Instagram. Sick. Well, validate me. Thank you so much. Validate, validate me. me on I'll, Instagram. I'll go give you some random deep likes. I don't even <laughs> I don't even know how I've gone with your last few posts, but I'll make sure you get some validation. Good, thank you. Um thank you everybody for listening. I'm Will at W.BerkmanPT and I'll talk to you all next time. Thanks for having me. Love you. Bye. <laughs>